before we dive into today's show, I just need to tell you exactly how Vanishing Ink Masterclass works and what your options are for joining in in November. Because we've got today's guest as our lecturer in November. That's right. Starting on Sunday, November the 6th, Homer Leewag is going to be giving his first ever lecture. He's been kind of busy for the last 28 years working with David Copperfield, so it's understandable that he's not had time to give many lectures, and we are genuinely amazed that he's agreed to do it for us. So here are your two options. You can go to the website and just buy Homer's Masterclass. That will run you $75. That gives you all three sessions, including the live Q&A on the third weekend in November. Or, if you want to save yourself 25 bucks, and who doesn't, subscribe to Vanishing Ink Monthly. This will give you all of Homer's Masterclasses, plus access to VI Studio, our hand-curated, carefully-picked, streaming-only library. Plus, in the UK and USA, you'll get free shipping with no minimum spend. If you just want a deck of cards, we'll ship it to you. Thumb tip, we'll ship it to you. Flash paper, we'll ship it to you. There's no minimum spend. And this free shipping is fast. Now, if it turns out that you don't really think that Vanishing Ink Monthly is for you, you can cancel your subscription with one click from inside your members area. So you can get access to Homer's Masterclass for $75 and that's it, or if you prefer to pay 50 bucks, subscribe to Vanishing Ink Monthly because you get all of the same content plus VI Studio plus free shipping with no minimum spend in the UK and USA and you'll save 25 bucks. For friends listening to this outside of the UK and USA, when you subscribe you save 20% on your shipping. Everybody else gets it for free. So that's it. Those are your options. 75 bucks to buy it as a one-off, $50 to subscribe, and if it's not for you, you can just cancel. So that's how it works, and that's how you can learn the lessons that my guest today will be teaching. It's none other than Homer Leewag. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Insider, brought to you and I realise this will freak everybody out, but it's brought to you by Vanishing Ink. Now, my guest today is a true renaissance man. Cooking, photography, magic, design, lighting, consulting, sound engineering, and so much more. Oh yes, and he's been busy working on the biggest magic show in the world for the last 28 years. It's Homer Leewag. Homer, how are you this afternoon? Hello. <laughs> Hi, I'm doing fantastic. How are you, Damien? I am delightful, thank you. But this is a short show, so there's no time for pleasantries. We're going to press on. What's your magic origin story? You've got 36 seconds. 36 seconds magic origin story. I just killed four seconds. Um, oh, uh, a friend of a family showed me a card trick when I was like eight or 11 or something. And I immediately went to the store and bought a magic book, Garcia and Schindler's Magic with Cards. And it came with a deck of cards. And that was my first magic book. And I was hooked immediately. I did magic from that book. Then I went to the bookstore. Um, I went, at the time, I would buy SS Adams tricks, mm -hmm. like the J Jiffy coin box, and uh, all those little tricks that were in the little plastic bubble hanging on the spinning cart. And then eventually, I found a magic shop. 
uh, breweries, Magic Shop, and Haynes House of Cards in Cincinnati, Ohio, where I was growing up. And amazing magic shops where I started picking up my first books, and I was attracted to... Uh, and then I met, I met a guy uh, who was working at a toy store there, an F.A.O. Schwarz, uh, named Jeff Connor. And he sort of kind of gave me a little, tutor uh, what do you call it, uh, mentorship when mm -hmm. I was young. And I started learning uh, Jerry Benzer's Counts, Cuts, Moves, and Subtlety. And Coin Magic had just come out by Richard Kaufman. So, uh -huh. oh, wow, the real work on Coin Magic. And, but I was drawn to like Derek Dingle's complete works. And all of a sudden, I'm doing the pass, and I'm doing stroboscopic riffle passes, and Frank Thompson multiple shifts. And I was starting to do really hardcore sleight of hand. Uh, well, and I, this is, I don't know. I was in, starting in high school now, so I might have been 13 or so, okay. 14. <laughs> okay. And then he introduced me to Paul Harris, and which I absolutely love the the fact that magic is not this, this little... Slide of, it's not about sleight of hand, it's about the story and the presentation yeah. and the oddity of it all and the unusualness of it all. And um, yeah, that was sort of, and then I met my first magician in Cincinnati, which besides Jeff, which was uh, Tom Frank, who performs regularly at the castle. And I was able to see the street performing side of magic and his chops were fantastic. And then I went to my first magic convention, which was, is this longer than 30 seconds? Am I doing? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely bang on so far. It's fine. <laughs> then I went to my first magic convention, which was uh, the Magi Fest in Columbus, which I know I've, you I've guys heard host. Yeah. Yes. And I went to my first one like 1988, maybe, or probably before you were born. Uh, 71, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I saw like... We, a, a young David Williamson before he was like hit the big time, uh -huh. he, just roaming the hallways, doing magic and pranks on people. And I was mesmerized. And that's why to this day, I still like, when I perform, I channel David Williamson because that's like my hero. You know, it's, it, he has the most amazing chops, but he's also just like funny and unexpected and goofy and just his interaction with people is ridiculous. So, and... Uh, a, a restaurant opened up in Indianapolis called Illusions Restaurant. And I slowly got sort of, I won a little magic contest in Indianapolis that gave me a week to perform there huh? in like 1989 or something. And that's where I met Chris Kenner and Mike Close, Dan Daggert, Steve Hart, all the folks at Illusions. And Chris and I became good friends. I did magic there. I, did, I bartended there when I, I, I slowly... Uh, stopped going to school. I was in school for industrial design in Cincinnati. I was like in my fifth year and I kept driving back and forth the hour and a half from Cincinnati to Indianapolis to perform at Illusions. Next thing you know, I'm living there full time. I'm sleeping on Chris's couch. We're writing totally out of control together. And I was a full-time magician all of a sudden. And out of nowhere, not out of nowhere, but Chris started working for David Copperfield. And about a, two years into that, he gave me a call one day and it was like, Homer, uh, we need you. Can you come out this afternoon? And I got on a plane that afternoon, said goodbye to my friends at Illusions, and I was on the road with David Copperfield, and here I am. I've heard that you say 
before that you should try and grow your act by 10% each time you perform. Can you talk more about that? To improve, I, I said that? To improve your act. Did I say that? That's, that, that was my research. Does that sound like something you'd say? Or you just... Yeah, it does, but I, don't, I wouldn't have said 10%. I think okay, well, the, 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 uh, maybe, maybe. But by 9.6. Try and improve your act each time you perform. Well, yeah. Can you talk I about how you I'm, do that? Yeah, I'm one of those people um, that every time... Illusions was an amazing place to do a magic set, close-up or stand-up, 10 to 30 times a night. And that's invaluable if you don't perform for real people that often. So imagine doing your set of, of five effects mm-hmm. 30 times a night. I believe that every single time you should try to improve on the next time. You know, if it, you, you keep a mental note or a notebook, you know, this joke didn't work, this effect was better towards the end or maybe this effect was losing the audience or not connecting or not appropriate for the room and every chance is every performance is an invaluable time to improve and it's like with David's show it's as soon as the curtain drops it is all the personnel come together and we go through the notes of that show this was still today after every every single show show. you do notes yes every show is a chance to improve Wow. You know, this could be better. This is this has not been looking good. How do we fix this? Oh, this will take a week to fix. They can fix this next show. Someone can sew this better, mm-hmm. and that's every show. Because if you, I feel like if you just do a show and you don't improve one even one percent, it's kind of a wasted opportunity. Right. So, and there's some magicians that are, you know, just speaking of like acts. Some acts are so solid because they've been honed. For years and years and years without changing, maybe little tiny things here and there. And that makes a great solid act because you're fine tuning something. And there's also acts that are constantly changing. And, I, and I, I'm sort of that way. It's like if I could change 30% every show and, and improve, not, not change, what I mean by change is not improve 30% better, Right. is improve, work on 30% of the act. Mm-hmm. and keep that moving forward. So you have a great opening, great closer, and then the stuff in the middle, you try a new routine, a new sequence. Yeah, yeah. Vernon always said, strong opener, strong closer, nobody cares about what you do in the middle so <laughs> right, much. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I could be paraphrasing, but something along those lines. Yeah. We had, John Vernon, not Guy yeah. Vernon. We, we had um, Andy Neumann on the show earlier in the year who was talking about saying that to be good you need to take risks. Is that something that you would agree with? I think it's to be, uh, I don't think to be good, to be superb, to stand out, you need to take risks. Um, yeah, I'm sticking with that. <laughs> so, so, so how do you factor in risks with a multi-million dollar David Copperfield show? Um, they have to be calculated because we have, you know, a paying audience, an audience that expects a certain level of performance. So our risks are, you know, occasionally we'll be working on something new and it's like, is it ready to go in? And, and Dave will be like, come on, grow up here. Let's do it. <laughs> and we'll throw it in the show because he has, you know, a spaceship to end with so he can, he can recover if it's, if, you know, 
the next version of what's next fails. We, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but um, we do calculated risks, but we still have a solid show that has to work like clockwork. So you can't completely change something or alter something. Yeah, yeah. Back in, I think, 2006, Coin One dropped. Can you tell us a bit about how that release came about? Because it changed the game in terms of method, in terms of an explanation video, in terms of packaging, in terms of design. Nothing had been seen quite like that before. So can you tell us the story about how it came to be? Yeah. Um that was around the time where I had already been working for David for six, uh, ten years. But I was still playing good magic a little bit, not full-time performing. And people were starting to release more and more DVD. DVDs were just starting to come out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and, a, and, a ma- and a DVD came out that had two coin routines with three coins that vanished and reappeared. And I saw that. I'm like, wait a minute. If this guy can do it. Maybe I should try. And I was trying to get into, a little more into camera work and cinematography and all that stuff. So I was like, this is good exercise. I, I look at everything as an exercise. You know, when I set up this podcast, I was like an exercise. How can I do this with one light in the daytime with no, you know, minimal equipment? Or when I, you know, if I'm going to do this master class, how can I do this better than I've done it before? Every time I do something, it's an opportunity. So when I thought of coin one, I was like, well, this is an opportunity to learn how to shoot magic, to shoot coin magic, how to make it look good, and how to teach magic. And one of my goals was to teach magic in a way that wasn't boring, where it wasn't someone rambling for 40 minutes, and you're like, uh-huh. wait a minute, what's the effect? Yeah. So I, ver- I kept a very, preci- very precise formula, which is you perform the effect as a spectator would see it very mm-hmm. cleanly. So you get the idea of like, oh, wow, that's what it's supposed to look like. Then you show the basic overview. It's like if you're learning a golf swing, you learn the basics first. A good teacher won't give you the 400 pieces of minutiae. They'll teach you the basics of balance, swing, tempo, and just let it, you know, whatever. That was my goal. And then you do the details and finesse later. Like once you get the overall, then we can do the, 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 the more detailed things. And also as an exercise, how can I do this without talking? Just by doing it graphically. And one of my inspirations was the airline safety cards you get in an, when you go to, when you fly and you take the card out and it says, you know, without words, it tells you how to put the buckle in, how to pull the strap, sure. where the, how to open the latch. There's a big arrow that shows, here's how you open the latch to let the escape hatch, uh, the escape slide drop. And that was my inspiration for Coin One. I wanted it to be simple, graphic, and and beautifully shot, down to the packaging. Uh, I was influenced by like when you go to, when you go to Japan and you buy the smallest item, it comes in a beautifully wrapped thing, presented with two hands. I wanted that feel with Coin One, and that was it. Now, some of the moves in Coin One and Coin Two look like CGI. It they are looks on <laughs> is that is that the method <laughs> was that your intent to get a couple of those moments that just are too impossible you know that's a great question i don't know if i've ever intended intended that uh on purpose 
but I think I'm drawn to those kind of moments. Mm. Like you can make a coin vanish with a great retention, which I love, but if it can vanish in midair, visually, I think I'm more drawn to that in those yeah. moments. Yeah. Uh, I don't, but that's an interesting question because I've never thought about it that way, but there are moments like that in my magic, I believe. Uh, I just reworked my old Carmex lip balm uh, routine, which I was playing with back in the 90s, but I just spent the last three weeks working on it hours a day, getting the minds of like Danny Garcia, Chris Kenner, Nick Defat, and like how would they approach it. And I realized I'm, every time I, I could easily just, it's like a, an Aikido coin box routine, and I could e easily just do a coin pass, make it disappear and appear in the mm -hmm. box, but I'd rather do it visually, you know, do a pinch vanish right on top of the box, and it drops through. I, I, I found out that, it, uh, yeah, so it's a, you, you just made me realize something, is that I do tend to lean towards a visual style and not just a, a more subtle style. I'm glad I've helped you understand yourself. Well, thank you. Uh, no. You can send me your it's, psychologist it's fee. There's no, there's no extra charge. What problems with Coins Across were you trying to solve? Um... I don't know if I was trying to solve something. I was trying to solve it for me. See, I, I'm, I have very thick, leathery hands, as you can see. This is like a, a full-on baseball glove, if you can't tell. But <laughs> let me take... This is great for audio <laughs> listeners. Homer's holding up his hand. It looks yes. leathery. It looks like a catcher's mitt <laughs> from 1962. Here's some ASMR. These are my hands. <laughs> Okay, um, we were talking about we were talking about problem solving. I right? did AMSR and now I'm lost. <laughs> uh, 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 we were talking about what were there specific problems that you thought Coins Across had that well, you were I was to solving solve? Yeah, I was solving problems for myself, which is I have trouble palming, uh, especially silver dollars. They do not fit in here. This is thick from tennis, and and I would put a silver dollar here, or just squirt out. Right. So I was drawn to the deep back clip and thumb palming and finger palming. And I, you know, watch, you know, being around amazing magicians like the Chris Kenners and the Chris Corns, I was able to learn just how to do all sorts of different kinds of finesse. And Bob Fitch, you know, Bob Fitch used to lecture, you know, learn how to transfer a coin from every position, from finger palm to thumb palm, from rear thumb palm to deep back clip to wherever. And that influenced me a lot. So coin one was a way of performing John Kennedy's in the hands translocation, which mm -hmm. used the Gossman pinch, which I can't do, especially now because I have a broken pinky and it's curled up like, a, like an inchworm over there. Um, coin one was a way of using a deep back clip because I couldn't palm right. or I couldn't do the Gossman pinch and it was easier for me. <laughs> and you know the move in coin one, which we'll learn in the master class, which is the uh, where I have a coin in deep back clip and I can pop it out very quickly, called the uh, flashback production, I think. That was because I couldn't do the retrieval. You know, in, if you look at coin magic, David Roth has a coin in deep back clip and he uses his pinky to grab the coin and bring it around into finger uh -huh. palm, which is a sort of a move which I can't do very well. So when I had the coin deep back clip, I would just, when I was practicing, just to get it back in the hand, I would just pop my hand and let it pop in, on top. And eventually I looked into the video camera, I'm like, that looks pretty good as a production. 
So I put a silver dollar on top and I would pop my hand and the second coin would appear. I'm like, that's pretty cool. Maybe that's how the trick works. Instead of bringing it in closely and closing your hand, you know, subtly, just, and there it is. So it became a visual appearance. And that was a, a way of solving, like, technique that I couldn't do, that fit things myself. Things that you could, weaknesses, things that you were unable to do because of your hands. How interesting. Yes. How interesting. Um, as we can, as visual enjoyers of this podcast on YouTube can see, you are a master of lighting. What are some common mistakes? What was I that? already know that my common mistake is that I've got two lights and they're right above me and I haven't got anything in front of me. But what are some common mistakes people oh, make? Sorry, my lighting went bad. You said... <laughs> Hold on. And... Oh, great. Oh, there it is. Sorry, that's just, you know, to force you to watch the YouTube video. <laughs> Go to the YouTube channel, Vanishing Inc., subscribe turn on notifications smash that like button (laughs) smash that like button (laughs) what are some common mistakes people make when it comes to lighting um well you look lit pretty nicely it's it's all about yeah but but like if you were to back up a foot or two uh, you have pretty even lighting but a lot of houses have a like that down light (laughs) and if you're directly underneath it you'll get these harsh shadows and a shiny forehead Oh, there we go. Sometimes just by moving forward, like mm-hmm. in my trailer, I literally say just by moving forward two feet, you look like, you're lit like a Hollywood movie. And that's true. If I had a strong light over my head right now and I just move forward, you'd watch those shadows. The light gets behind you, becomes like an edge light, and then you're lit by the ambient light in the room coming back right. at you. And, and that's all. And a lot of times, like your, your, your computer looks, your camera looks like it's at the correct height. You know, a lot of people do a zoom like this and their, their laptop's on their desk, so their camera's looking up at them, and now we're looking up under their nose, and they look like... <laughs> so, the camera height's good. I have the camera way up. It's slightly above eye level. It's like a, you know, uh, someone slightly up taller than me looking at me, so it has a flattering look. And, and then just blocking light. Let's say you have a window over here with the sunlight streaming in. That would look really harsh. And unpredictable so like okay. I even have over here I have a big black board just blocking the Sun just blocking the Sun so that it's consistent and oh, that's interesting you know, if you don't negative, have a black negative, board, negative yeah, I have a negative well fill as... right here <laughs> just sitting on a chair just to keep you know just to keep me shaped like a I know like a the Jedi I want to be <laughs> but yeah you can do it very simply without a lot of money so you're well known for your passion about detail, like your wedding band and the circle on it being a knee joint from an at-at. Now, a lot of people would say that hardly anybody would realise or notice or appreciate that. So why, why do you bother? Because um, I don't have enough creativity to, to design my own. <laughs> no, it's... Uh, it's just something the, I love. The, 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 the wedding band's one example. It, it, yeah. it's, it's all of your well, work, isn't it? This little I tiny... Yes, that's a big influence from... Uh, one of my great, favorite movies is Empire Strikes Back. And it's not just the movie, but the design. So all of the elements in my deck of cards, in my ring, uh, in my tattoo. If you're, if you're on the YouTube channel, <laughs> you can see my tattoo. There's that knee joint for the ad is right uh, here somewhere. 
Uh, yeah, right there. That's the same thing you're talking about. Uh-huh. That's a knee joint to the ADAT, and that's because I just, I, I'm in love with design. So I went to school for industrial design, and when Star Wars came out, one of the coolest things I loved about it was the production design and the art direction. So that knee joint from the ADAT is, I drew that, and not to copy the movie, I drew that inspired by the original sketches from Joe Johnston, who did the production art for Empire Strikes Back, you know, based on Ralph McQuarrie's, you know, paintings. So, yeah, and that kind of detail, I love, I love seeing something and then you look closer and you see detail that you wouldn't have seen if you didn't pay attention that looks normal from 10 feet away. It's one yeah. of my favorite things. Yeah. Your photography is quite good. I think we can agree. Do you think your appreciation and skill of creating a story with a single frame has helped your work with David's show? Are you continually thinking about the still images that people leave his theatre with? Um, that, I believe that's one and the same. It's like, you know, my brain is always thinking in visualness. In fact, someone asked me the question last week, if you visualize an apple, you can do this yourself, if you visualize an apple and you close your eyes, do you still see the apple? Do you? I'm gonna close my eyes. Yeah? You can visualize the apple even with your eyes closed? Uh-huh. Okay, so there is a large percentage of the population that cannot visualize that apple. It's oh. called aphantasia, I believe, and it's a new, kind of sort of a new discovery, and a new thing to talk about. So, interesting, right? Yeah. I have no idea how it applies to this question, but I'm, I just thought, you know. <laughs> Everyone at home is closing their eyes and visualizing an apple. Or not. But, yes, and visualizing that I forgot this question. What was the question? The um, detail, the, the still. No, no, we've done the detail. I have to scroll back now, man. It, it's the still uh, about your the imagery. Your, your love of photography See, helps my, my love shape. Of yeah, my love you're of thinking in terms of frames that people I leave. Do. You, you nailed it. I do think in, I think in terms of composition. My dad was an, is an amazing artist. And he taught me that composition is super important. You know, what composes the frame is, you know, you know, where your focus is drawn. And if you look at David's show, compared to other magic shows, um, you know, the focus is always on the magic. It's, it's surrounded, you know, when the car appears, it's surrounded by a ring of people, ropes and light. It's all about the framing of it. It's not seven people dancing over here and a flash of light over here and a... Mm -hmm you know, and smoke over here and fire over here. It's all about the magic. Or the focus is always on the magic. And I'm the same way. And I don't know how that relates. My photography, I approach personally. Like when I do my photography, I'm not thinking about the show. I'm thinking about, I'm growing as a photographer slowly. And one of the things that I feel like in just in recent years, I've become better at is communicating my feeling through photography. So I used to be able to take a picture, and a lot of people, as they go through photography or any kind of art, they start by like, oh, I want to look like this. Oh, this will impress people if I do this filter, or I make this color correction on this video. It's, you know, that's hip and trendy. It looks like Michael Bay. I think I've gotten to the point now when I post a photo, this is how I want it to feel like. 
and I want you to feel this. And it doesn't matter what it takes, if it's black and white, or if it means a minimalist frame, or a complicated frame, or multiple frames, or a video. I want you to feel something, and I believe people, and people tell me, you know, I don't hear the bad stuff, but I hope people tell me that, hey, the way you shot that, it made me feel like it was a haunted place, or it made me feel the motion in that spot. And I'm like, that's, that was my goal. So I guess I'm okay. getting better at it. Okay. But it's so still, I'm still an infant. What if that's not your goal? That it wasn't to make them feel that it was haunted or whatever, but, but they felt something. Is that still a win? Or is oh, that absolutely. a failure because it wasn't well, no. what you wanted? It, it, it is art and communication. If it doesn't communicate, you know, maybe it's what I wanted to express. If they don't get it, you know, if someone reads your, you write a book, someone reads it and doesn't like it, it's not your fault. You know, I'm, my art is going out to a worldwide audience. I'm not expecting everyone to connect with it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't yeah, think it's a yeah. failure. It's a failure if you don't try, right? Hey. Like Yoda said, you better try. 